Well, it was the fall of 1983. I don't know what you were doing at that point, but I was in high school, just starting high school, freshman in high school. And uh, I had just moved from a small town in the Pacific Northwest to Southern California, to the city of Long Beach, just up the freeway from here. And being it that it was the fall, well, it was football season, specifically college football season, specifically a local university here in the area's football season that I had come to join in with my aunt and uncle who I'd come to live with and them going to these football games in the fall because they had season tickets. And I remember kind of still adjusting to Southern California, still adjusting to what is all going on. It's still adjusting that Saturdays, we're not getting up to work on a farm. We're going to a football game in a bunch of traffic, but it's going to be a great ride and we're going to have a great day today. And I remember being told one particular Saturday morning that today is homecoming. And I remember thinking and hearing that phrase homecoming. Maybe I'd heard it one other time. Homecoming. I, I honestly had heard of home going and I wasn't too looking forward to going to talk about or see or celebrate that per se. Home, what, what's homecoming? I remember my aunt saying something to the effect of, well, it's when all the alumni go home to their alma mater. She could have spoken Greek to me at this point. We're already off on homecoming. Now we're having words like alumni and alma mater. Is alma mater one word? No, Bill, it's two. Oh, okay. And trying to grasp and understand what was going on. And I remember going to this day to homecoming and going over on the campus And I remember my uncle, because he played baseball when he was in college, going to join up with some of the baseball alumni. And I remember kind of just sitting there, still trying to figure out, where are we? What is going on? This is a big city. There's lots of people here. It's warm and sunny in the fall, and we're in Southern California. This is just, all this is just trying to grasp and catch this. And I remember hearing kind of stories, and them laughing and shaking hands and reminiscing about the past. And then sharing stories about the present or what somebody was doing or how work was going or how things were going with their family. I just remember remember hearing that and kind of celebrating that day. And I learned that homecoming was pretty special for all the alumni returning home to their college. And as we continue our series in knowing the truth about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, uh, we come to an event that looked to be a pretty special day in the life of Jesus. I'm calling this day when Jesus went to homecoming. When Jesus went to homecoming. Like it was at my uncle's homecoming that day, there were stories being shared, updates being given. And the top, topic of the day, the most popular stories of the day, the most interesting updates were the ones about Jesus, the ones that were circulating, the hometown boy. They heard was in the area, was in the region that possibly he could be coming home because he's now all grown up. I mean, I can imagine the conversations and the stories being held and had like it would be at a homecoming game, but here in the surrounding community and maybe at the synagogue. Hey, did you you hear about Jesus? You know, the guy that grew up down the street from you? Did you hear what's going on? No, what's going on with him? (laughs) Well, you're not going to believe this, but... uh, Word has it that my neighbor's cousin's brother's sister's best friend was there, and something of the effect of Jesus went into the Jordan and was baptized by that crazy guy, John the Baptist. And when Jesus came up out of the water, there was a voice from heaven that spoke that this is my son. 
get out of here. No, I'm serious. That's what the cousins, neighbors, friends, brothers, sister, that's what I heard. And the stories continue. And there's another story about the one where you say, hey, did, did, you, did you hear? Maybe it's in another synagogue. Did, did you hear the one about where he was at a, well, just up the road from here at the wedding in Canaan and Galilee? Did, did you hear about the water? He, he turned water into wine. I know, running out of wine at a wedding, not a good thing. But he took care of it. Miracle. He took the water and made it into the best wine. That didn't happen. No, I'm telling you, heard it from a friend, heard it from another friend. That's, that's what's going on. That's what this guy's doing. And so certain stories like this are circulated in the life and beginning ministry of Jesus, because this is going to capture kind of at the beginning. And we're kind of still learning who he is and what he's doing. And the word is out that he's been cited in their region. He's teaching in their area synagogues. And the latest news circulating, rumor has it, he's coming back to Nazareth. He's coming back to the place he grew up. Can you imagine you're the hometown and you have your hero that's becoming heroic, if you will, Jesus coming to your hometown? This has got to be a homecoming you don't want to miss. You know what I mean? I mean, this is going to be exciting to think that the Savior of the world, or at least that's what we're kind of hearing words like this crazy thing, are going out. I mean, I'm, I got to think that it, to some degree they're thinking, hey, Jesus is one of us. We've heard all these stories. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in our home church, at our hometown, what he's going to do here? The miracles that he's going to do here with us, his home people we grew up with? You imagine how amazing this is going to be? This is going to be like a homecoming we've never heard of and never seen before. And so we get the opportunity this morning to join in at this homecoming. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn it to, turn it to Luke chapter 4. Luke Chapter 4, this is the first time that Jesus returns home to Nazareth, where he grew up. And I also want to let you know that it's the last time he's going to return home. So the verses we have here are just a quick snapshot, quick photo, if you will, a pause in the life of Jesus And so I want you to have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke is where we are in this series, knowing the truth about Jesus. But let me pray before we get into his homecoming. Lord, we stop and thank you again for this day to come in and worship you, to commune with you. God, now as we take your holy and perfect inspired word, I pray, God, that you would transform us. God, that you would speak to us, that we would lay down Whatever worries or concerns or whatever the doctor said this week or whatever we have to deal with this coming week. God, this is an appointment. This is an hour. This is a time that you just want to have with us. So I pray that we would just yield our worries, our fears. God, that you would just guard our minds so that we could focus on what you want to say to us, say to me, and these moments we have together. So meet us here, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I kind of broke this section of Scripture into kind of three parts. I'm calling it the home church, the welcome, and more than a welcome, a home. And so we're going to break this down in kind of that three, kind of three categories, three sections here. So let's begin with the home church here. Here he is. We're coming up to it. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. 
And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That's authority right there. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district, like the stories I gave as an example. Verse 15, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, the hometown, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Let's pause right there. So we got a picture of what's going on here. It, it, Jesus has been teaching around the area of Galilee. It's an area north of Jerusalem, a 50 miles stretched north and south, 25 miles east or west, decent size area. There's a historian, a Jewish historian, his name is Josephus. And Josephus tells us that in that region, in this area where Jesus has been going around, as depicted in these verses we just read, that there's about maybe 3 million people spread it out through all there. And in that region, there's probably about 300 towns, 300 villages, if you will. Not like towns we think of today, these are just small areas. But here's what's interesting. The law stated that if you had 10 Jewish families, at least 10 Jewish families, you had to have a synagogue. You had to establish that. So there's all these areas, 300 some odd podunk towns, if you will, that you would just drive by if you didn't know it. But they had at least 10 families, and so they had a synagogue. So that's where these places are that he's been going around, if you get the idea here. So there's maybe, uh, maybe there's 20, 30 people that are seated in there. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe the biggest ones would seat maybe 50 or 60. And of course, there's the temple in Jerusalem. Well, the temple, that's where you went to do your sacrifices. That's where you went to the festivals, as they were said, up through the year. But week in and week out, you didn't make that journey to Jerusalem. You were at your home synagogue. You went to church on Saturday. It was the Sabbath. It was normal. That was what Jesus was raised with. That was the norm and the culture that he grew in. In the synagogue, he'd start with singing in prayer, kind of like what we did. And about a half a dozen people or so would read from the scrolls or the books, as it might say in your translation, but they were scrolls. And after reading was completed, the leader of the synagogue asked if anybody had anything to share. You see, all the paid staff, if you will, the worship leader, the worship person who is teaching, are in Jerusalem at the temple. It's just lay people here in this, at this, these synagogues. And so the way it would be is a scroll would be opened and it would be read, and as it's read, then they would sit down, and the leader or the attendant would say, is there anybody has any insight that you would like to share today? And that's how it worked, and that's how it went in these synagogues. So the word of Jesus is starting to spread, and it's the baptism, it's the temptation, it's the miracles, it's John the Baptist claiming and declaring that he is the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. And so every time you can imagine now that Jesus shows up to one of these synagogues, and he joins in, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, you can imagine what it had to be like as they're like, hey, look who's here at church today. <laughs> it's Jesus. I've heard about all these miracles, the stories that are going before him now. Now he's at our church today. Ooh, this is going to be interesting. 
So normal worship service has gone on, and you come, and scripture's read, school's read, and the attendant would get up and ask if anybody had anything to say. Can you imagine the attendant there that day? Um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Jesus, I heard that you're the son of God, <laughs> mm, savior of the world. Uh, do you have anything to say? And man, what he teach? And he'd get up and he, they, he, he, he would teach and they'd listen to teaching like they'd heard no other place. And he didn't teach about religion. Didn't teach about something that they had all heard before. He taught in a different way. He taught about what was coming. That they could have a personal relationship with their Heavenly Father. And that the Messiah was coming to pave the way for that. Note again in verse 16, as was his custom. We don't have a whole lot in Scripture that tells us about Jesus' upbringing. We have his birth. We have the eighth day being circumcised, following the law. We have it when he got away and was teaching the temple and it freaked his parents out. And they're wondering, where were you? And he's like, I was, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? I was teaching at 12. And now we forward ahead to age 30 or so. But what we get to see here is all that time, all those 30 years, as the scripture says here, is as was his custom. In other words, Jesus grew up going to church, going to synagogue every week. He knew the routine. He knew how it worked. He knew how it went. He had been there. He had heard teaching and so much teaching through the years. And I'm thinking if we could understand this here, this picture that Jesus is sitting in now to his home church. The spirit is upon him. His ministry is beginning. The purpose he came here for is unfolding. So when the scroll is handed to him, he knows it completely. He's been studying his whole life. The scrolls that he could have read, he chooses to read a couple verses from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Of all the passages of Scripture, all the scrolls that they had, and if this synagogue didn't have that scroll, they would go to another synagogue and get it, and they would share. And imagine this is opened up, and he reads something here in his welcome. And I call these next verses the welcome. They tell us that Jesus has come to reach. If you have your Bible open, look at Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He quotes from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim and release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favor of the year of the Lord. And it says he closed the book, or some translations has it, he rolled up the scroll. And he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. That's our hometown guy. I taught him at Sunday school. I've seen him grow up. And look at what he just read, and we're, and we're, we're just captivated right now. As Jesus is here, and he's teaching, and he's reading. And you think about it, out of all the verses in Isaiah... Jesus reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Now, just so you understand, chapter and verse in Scripture does not come until 1,200, 1,500 years later. So it's not like he opened it up and where's, oh, 58, 59, oh, here I am, 61. 
It's not there. You're just continually rolling through, and he knows it that well. And he comes to these two verses knowing them that well. In other words, he's very purposeful, very strategic in what he's reading and what he's going to share with his home church that he's grown up with. It's also important to note, if you were to go and turn to Isaiah 61, don't do it now, but maybe later you want to and read through that, you notice that he stops halfway through verse 2. And the reason that he does that is because what he says and reads in these verses that we have here recorded in Luke 4, up until the halfway point of verse 2, is about what's to happen now that he's here. The second part of verse 2 speaks of a future time to come. And that, if you read it, is about God's judgment. We have yet to encounter that ultimately when all is said and done as we look in prophecy of books like Revelation and Matthew 24 and places like that. So he stops here strategically. You see, Isaiah prophesied that the coming Messiah will be the one who will suffer and die. In other words, the Jesus you want is not going to be the Jesus that you get. It's starting to take a little bit of a turn here for them. You see, you want a God who's going to make you free from the Roman occupation. You want a God who's going to bless you profoundly, make you rich. You want all everything taken care of. You want to be powerful. You want to be known. Some of the other things that we might succumb to, what we would like to have. But in the end, church in Nazareth, rest of the world, all the synagogues, you're going to get somebody who doesn't look heroic, the hometown boy that's come home. No, what you're going to get is you're going to get a suffering Messiah who is going to be lied about, who's going to be taken to a trial illegally, who's going to be beaten, who's going to have his beard plucked, who's going to be spat upon, it's going to be pushed down and said, carry your cross. Doesn't sound like the heroic person I was thinking that we might have come home to our little synagogue here in Nazareth. And let me tell you, they're not happy about hearing this at this point. This isn't the text of scripture that they're going, oh, can you imagine like, oh, I hope he reads and teaches on this. And then he drops this on them. Like, what are you doing? Well, let's keep searching here and see if we can understand what's going on. They hated being told that they're sinners in need of a redeemer. And as we see here, though, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. Some of you might have a translation to preach or come forth with the good news. And so here they are. They're sitting here listening to him. And at the end, it says in verse 21, he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Prophecy from Isaiah 61, the great prophet Isaiah, huge scroll, 61 chapters, lots of paper there, parchment paper. And he reads this. He basically is saying, I'm going to answer the two questions that are on your mind, home church, home crowd. And it's this I am He, and it is now. I'm the Messiah the one that's prophesied about. And that time for my arrival is now, right here. I'm home. I'm where I belong. He's come to let them know this in his hometown. You see me grow up. You see me here. 
because that was my custom. And in verse 22, it says that all were speaking well of him, Luke 4, 22, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? They still don't quite get what's going on. They're not quite sure why he's read that. They're not quite sure what this means completely. But friends, this is the 10th time in Luke's gospel that he's declared that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, what Luke has been saying up to this point is, it is him, it is now. And I bring that out to you is that we can't come to this book, we can't read the story like this and not notice what's being proclaimed here. Up to this point, if, depending upon how you look at it, what translation you work with, 10 times Luke has claimed that this is the Messiah, this is Jesus, this is the Lord, this is God in the flesh. And if that's not true, then what Luke has laid out is 10 blatant lies. And if that's the case, then I don't, wouldn't say that Jesus is a good man or a good teacher or a good prophet or a good whatever. That doesn't add up. In other words, Jesus can't be just a good man, a good prophet, a good teacher, and a good way if he is not God. So we have him making this declaration of who he is and what he's brought. So who has God come to welcome? Well, if you look back in these verses, four people groups, if you will. The first one is found in Luke chapter 18. It says that Jesus has come to welcome the poor. Verse 18. See, Isaiah 61, uh, Isaiah is saying here that there are major sin issues in our lives, that there's brokenness, there's separation from God. Not something that we all want to hear, is it? Poor, physically poor. The gospel isn't going to be just for the wealthy or for the one who can afford much and give more. It's going to be for literally the poor person who has nothing, just their life and the clothes on their back. It's for the poor spiritually that he's come to rescue, the gospel is for, he's come with good news. It's for the person who's spiritually bankrupt. He says, I got nothing. And Jesus says, I'll go pay for your bankruptcy. I'll take the sin. All I ask for you is, is that you give me faith. You trust me. Secondly, Jesus has come to welcome the prisoners. You might have the word captives in your translation. Those of things that we can get caught up in in our lives. If we look out in our society today, we can look at what people are prisoners of. They're prisoners of food, of drugs, of alcohol, of gambling, and of entertainment, of internet, of spending habits, reputation, the opinions of others, how they look, how things are going, what they're driving, whatever. And those are things that can hold us captive, hold us prisoner from what we should really be able to enjoy in life. And Jesus says, I've come to set you free. I've come to give you life that you were designed to have. And thirdly, he says here, recovery of sight to the blind in verse 18. Blind, literally? Yeah, there's going to be stories of Jesus giving sight to the blind. Spiritually? Yeah, there's going to be people that are going to have their eyes open, be able to see and understand, oh, this is who this is. This is Jesus. This is the Son of God. It's the kind of blindness that prevents us from correctly valuing the eternal life over the temporal. It's going to restore sight so we can see who we really are before a holy God and what he's come to offer us. And lastly, Jesus welcomed, it says here, to set free those who are oppressed. 
those who live under the weight of abuse, for example, whether it's physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, those that live under the oppression of guilt from something they did 20 years ago, and they just can't let it go. That's hanging over them. Jesus come for those that are burdened by what life has done to them and what they've done to life. That's who he's come to reach. This is how he's setting this up and bringing this to them. Oh, but it's more than a welcome. See, he's driving to home. He's going for home. And in Luke 4, 22 to 29, we have this picture. See, Jesus is foretelling here his homecoming speech, if you will, and that he has come to welcome home these kinds of people, people like Zacchaeus, rich with money, but poor spiritually, a little woman caught in adultery, a prisoner of her culture to free, and he calls her daughter. And Nicodemus, someone who's spiritually blind, had been living the religious life, going to the synagogue, but still just, it's just not clicking, helping him have that. You see, in these stories, Jesus is setting up for who he has ultimately come to do, or what he has ultimately come to do and will do on the cross. That's why this crowd is fixed on him. They're amazed at what he's saying and his teaching. That is up until verse 23. It was a good homecoming until verse 23. Here we go. It turns, the mood in the room changes. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, Jesus, we've, we've heard about the teaching. We've heard about the, the miracles that you've done. And we're thinking, since it's our hometown, the home church that you grew up in, and we know you and we saw you raised, you've got some special blessings, some special miracles in line for us today. That's why we're really here, because we think this is all going to go for us in our way. But you're going to roll out things that we're going to see like we've never seen before. See, their thoughts are not about the poor or the person who's a prisoner, or the person who's blind or oppressed. Yeah, it sounds good. That's good that you're going to do that for them, Jesus, but that's none of us. That's for them. We're all good people. We go to synagogue every week. We got it all together. So clearly, you're going to have to bring your blessing like we've never seen before, and the stories that are going to come from that are going to be truly the ones from Nazareth, his hometown. And verse 23 tells us that Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were wanting. They weren't really wanting him or a relationship with him or to see him as the Messiah that had been prophesied or that John the Baptist was now proclaiming or the voice from, from heaven was proclaiming. They wanted him to be their genie, if you will, to do all these neat things for them, to put on a show, so to speak, because it's our home church. It's about us. And in verses 24 to 29, Jesus isn't going to say what the crowd wants to hear, but what they need to hear. So verse 23 was a turning point now, verse 24, it's like the heat on the oven or the burner gets turned up. Here we go. Verse 24, and Jesus said, truly, I say to you, not that he hasn't spoken of truth before, but truly speaking to this crowd here, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. 
But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. Are you getting this? So he stops right there and he gives this story, if you will, of a setting. He says, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome to his hometown. You'll see this unfold here in just a few moments of how he says that and what's about to come. It's really, in some ways, a prophecy that he's about to fulfill or there to fulfill on him. It's a summary, and what we have here in verse 25 is a summary of a story found in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 to 24. And I put that there in your notes if you want to go look it up. It's an interesting story. It's in the days of Elijah, and there's no rain, and there's a famine, and there's not a lot of food, and there's this widow who has a son. And what God tells Elijah to do is to go to her, not the Israelites, but to go to an enemy, if you will, to go to somebody who worships an occult, who practices things that are against and are horrible to God. Go to her, knock on her door, and tell her to give you the last bit of flour and the last bit of oil, the cake that she's about to make for her, her, herself and her son. And then the, the scripture tells us in that first Kings passage that she's going to die at that point. That's how depleted they are, health-wise, food-wise. And Elijah goes and says, hey, I'm here. I need you to make and feed me. And if you do that, you will always have flour and you will always have oil. So she goes in and makes that, brings it to them, I'm sure, going, man, I don't know, but the God of Israel, maybe he's worth trusting. And they do, and she does, and she has food again. So he tells them this story. But in case they're not quite getting it, he tells them another story. Verse 26. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And then he says in verse 27, so that's the one we were talking about. In verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So the first story is about this woman that we just read here, about that Elijah goes to in Zarephath. And now we have a story about a leper. Leprosy was, you know, stay outside. The laws were set that you stay outside the city. You have to announce anybody who's coming to your presence that you're a leper. You basically are just getting food scraps. And if you die, you die, but you've got leprosy. And then he shares this story about Elisha the prophet, and they have people with leprosy, but the only one that's, that's healed of it is Naaman the Syrian. He's not even one of us. He's a general. He's an enemy of Israel. And by the way, he kidnapped one of our own girls and take him as his slave back in his palace. And, and, and what, what Elisha tells him is that, hey, here's what you need to do. You need to go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Go in once, go in twice, seven times, Come out and you'll be healed of your leprosy. He does, and he's healed of his leprosy. An enemy of Israel, a Gentile, if you will. So I don't know if we we're understanding why Jesus lays these out, but uh, these stories out. <laughs> but those in the synagogue that day, they understand what he's saying, and they do not like it at all. Look at verse 28 and 29. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with happiness. And no, they are filled now with rage 
as they heard these things, these two stories, and they got up, their hometown boy, and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. What an end to homecoming. They want to get rid of him and kill him. Stoning in that day was set up where you throw rocks at him, stone him, but if you had a hill and you could push him down, that's what you did. Then you'd throw rocks on him and kill him that way. That's what they were going to do here. That's what they're set up to do because of the stories that they told him. They can't stand him. And the reason why is because he's saying this. I've come to reach people that are poor, that are uh, in prison, that are blind, that are oppressed. Okay, we can take that. And then he's saying that he's come to reach people like these people, these two stories, the widow and the enemy of God. This guy here that's mentioned here in verse 27. And they're thinking, man, Naaman, you've come to reach those people. And what he's saying here is that you guys are worse than those guys. You are more sinful. You are against God's favor more than those two people were. Now, if you're thinking you're the home crowds and you've got an inside scoop here and you're going to get the better blessings than anybody else has gotten, you can understand now why, when you hear this, why you might be just a little bit upset that Jesus is now throwing this down and putting you below these two people, two enemies. Well, as I thought about this, this is kind of an interesting thing here. Some expectations as I close. You see, to be at home in Christ church, we understand he has some expectations. He has some significant expectations, some expectations that were true then and they're true today. And I want to submit to you that these expectations, I'm just a messenger here. And they hit me. So I ask of you not to take me and throw me down the cliff down to Moulton Parkway that I don't get ran over. Here they are, the expectations that Christ has for his church. That's us, his people. We need to understand. The first one is this. We, need to, we want to feel better, but Jesus wants us to get better. We want to feel better. Jesus wants us to get better. That's what we have here happening in this church. They want to all feel better. They wanted to walk out of church going, oh, this is such a great service today. I feel so good. But I'm not any better. I'm more selfish and self-centered than I ever have been. You see, oftentimes we'll say, no, God, I, 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 I'm not interested in getting better. I, I just want to feel better. And Jesus says, no, an expectation I have that's more valuable, more important for you is for you to get better. The second expectation we need to understand about Christ and his church is that we, need, we want to be blessed, but Jesus wants to change us. We want to be blessed, but Jesus wants to change us. His home crowd wanted the miracles. Do for us, make it bigger, make it better. In other words, I want to keep living my life the way I want to live my wife, life, but I want you to do things for me. I, I don't want prayers that, that, that call me to be changed, but ones that I could be blessed by. 
And Jesus says, I haven't come to do that. I've come to change you. And finally, to be at home in Christ's church, we understand this third expectation is this. We want to be saved from our problems, don't we? But Jesus wants to save us from our sins. Now, if you think about it in your own life, how many times have you go to God asking, God, would you solve or take away this problem? And at times, ignoring sin. Because we want that problem taken care of, and we're kind of ignoring sin. Yeah, do the good stuff, God. Not this other stuff. We don't want to hear about that. That doesn't make me feel better. I don't want to change. I want my problems gone. If sin is, well, you can take care of that maybe later. Let me leave you with the final thought. It's found in the last verse. The hometown crowd finally gets the miracle after all. Look at verse 30. He's out on the hill, and they're about to throw him off and kill him. And then verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went his way. Passing through their midst, he went his way. He's gone. Homecoming's over. He'll never be back. And the final thought is this. It's a convicting one. We can either get rid of disobedience or we can get rid of Jesus. The hometown church chose to get rid of Jesus. Said, now we don't want what you've got. We don't want to get better. We don't want to be changed. We don't want to be saved from our sins. We just want all the good stuff. Problem-free life. And Jesus says, that's not what I've come for. I've come for something much richer and much deeper. The hometown missed out on what Jesus was offering, and because of their expectations, he never came back. Friends, I just want to remind you, I want to remind me that to embrace these expectations as you come to your church week in and week out, to not, to not miss the homecoming blessing that Jesus came to give and to welcome Jesus home into your life day in and day out. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that you brought for us today. And Lord, I pray that we would have a heart that is open to what you want to do. God, we would yield that to you. We would allow you to have dominion and reign and be our Lord over us and what maybe we desire or what we feel like or what we want to do. And God, I just pray that you would uh, speak to us. God, this is, this is one of those messages for me where I look at certain areas in my life and I think I, I, I don't necessarily always want to be changed or I definitely want sometimes my problems removed. Yet, it's not that those can't happen or that you won't bring those, but there's some priorities that have to be in order first. Sky, may this be a reminder to us today what you're looking for and how great a Savior you are and what you came to offer. May we welcome you home each day of our lives to do what you would want to do so that you'd be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.